Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we welcome BAFTA-winning director Michael Pierce, who spoke to us about his feature, Encounter. In this conversation, Michael is joined by Directors UK member Jan Demange. Michael and Jan discuss working with kids on production, his approach to developing a connection between the actors, how DOP Benjamin Krakun created the character's visual language, and what Michael classes as his most rewarding scene in the film. The Directors UK podcast celebrates the craft of directing. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to share with your friends. Now back to Michael and Jan. Michael, <laughs> congratulations, mate. Um, for those, I mean, Michael, fantastic second film. Uh, after a, an amazingly well-received and amazingly made debut, absolutely loved your first film. And I really love this film. I think it's a really, lots of bold choices, really interesting. I feel it's, I love the contrast and how different it is from your first film. Uh, I thought we'd have a, a sort of linear conversation, starting with, I know that this script was floating around for a while, right? Um, and I think I'd read a version of it years ago, and it's, it, what you made with it was completely different. And it feels completely personal, actually, to you in a, in a strange way, having known you a little bit over the years. I thought maybe we could talk to what drew you to it and how you developed it and what you saw in it and how you made it your own. Um, so I, I really didn't want to write my second film because it took me so long to write Beast, something like seven years. And, and I guess part of that might have been because I was trying to figure out what type of filmmaker I wanted to be. And so maybe it wouldn't have taken as long um, to write another movie, but it would just, it was such a long process. And I thought there's so many talented writers out there. I was just like really keen to find material and read material. And naively, I thought that there'd be lots of things that I'd respond to straight away. And I was interested in this space between kind of making a character film and a, a genre film, so similar to how, how Beast is, though I, I wanted to stretch myself with uh, the second movie. And I found so many scripts weren't in that Venn diagram. They were either dramas, really well-written dramas and really thoughtful, but they didn't have kind of, they weren't in a genre space. Or I was reading genre scripts and maybe I was missing uh, some depth of um, some depth to the psychology of the characters. Um, so it was a couple of years that I was reading material, like scripts and also books and just not finding anything. And then someone from the production company, Raw, brought me Joe's script, which, as you said, had been around for quite a few years by that point. And lots of people had read different versions. Everyone had loved it. And it just it just hadn't got made the right combination of director or the right version of the script or the right piece of casting. You know, you need so much cosmic alignment to happen for, for a film to get made. And it just wasn't one that just got off the ground, though it had always had a lot of love. And anyway, I read the script and other than it being a sort of, you know, in this, this space of being a character film, but also a genre film, 
or genre, hybrid genre film. I also really connected with the family dynamic in it, this relationship between a father and his two kids and how that, that relationship evolved throughout the story and it shifted and um, that it was a kind of coming of age film for these three men, for a father and for his two sons. And it, it resonated with me on a very like personal level. I could see my relationship with my dad and my younger brother and certain things we went through when we were similar ages to the characters in the film. So I kind of, I just, I read it um, very quickly in the space of an hour. And I was, I just knew it had to be my second movie. And then I thought I was going to work with Joe on doing a, a quick redraft. And then it was two years later that I had a shooting yeah. script. Yeah, it's very rare and crazy when that happens, isn't it? When you read something and you just know you're going to make this and you know that your version wouldn't be like anybody else's because like I did read it and it's, it's nothing. It just seems so personal. You made it so your own. Um, so obviously you speak to the, the themes of the father and the sons, but also it's really, as well as the rug pull, and we'll talk about how you played that. Um, it feels like it's a, a quite a smart way into talking about mental health um, and sort of PTSD more on the nose. But there was... It feels like it's wonderfully handled how it affects the kids and seeing it through the, the kids' point of view. Is that what you knew you wanted to bring to it? How did that evolve? Was that you and yeah, Joe I, writing? I, did you take over and start writing yourself? No, it was. Um, I actually wanted uh, Joe to continue writing on it because I've fallen in love with his script, fallen in love with his characters. I had a very specific uh, take on how I thought it should be developed and I pitched it to him and the one of the producers and I said this is what I think we should do and I, I, there was like three big things and I think one of them was to make it more of a two-hander so we would see a bit more of the story from the elder child's point of view and the film would kind of vacillate between this father and son I think it was much more in the, the father's point of view and at least the draft that I read um, the second thing I said, I was like, I think we need to believe as the audience members what the, you know that this alien invasion is going on. I think that I think if we do that, it could be a um, felt there was an opportunity to to use genre as a empathetic uh, tool to get inside the character's head. Because otherwise, if we know that something's up too early. That, that I felt like there was a danger that you would um, you would kind of put Riz's character into a box. You know, it could just you could see it as oh, this is someone a mentally unwell man is kidnapping his children for the weekend. And I thought, well, yes, to some degree that's true, but from his point of view, he's saving his children. Like he, this is at, he's he's acting with totally good intentions. Of course, he's suffering from a mental illness, so he's got a very uh, um, distorted perception of reality but if we can get the audience to to believe in that then they're going to be with him the whole way even when he makes mistakes because you're really you, you've been in his shoes for the first 30 minutes um, and so he's not going to be a you know a diagnosis he's not going to be someone he's not going to be an archetype of a um a mentally un, unwell person you you identify with motivations 
Um, and there was something else uh, escapes me now. There was a third thing. Oh, that was it. Halfway through the film, I felt that we had to amplify some level of tension. And so I said, the th- other thing we have to do is, I think the law enforcement that are pursuing him have to, they, they have to somehow infer um, some really bad intentions from what's happened. And I pitched to, to Joe and the producer, I said, what happens if they looked at the evidence and that he's kidnapped his children, he's divorced from his wife, he's been disgraced from the military? Could they possibly deduce that they think uh, this guy is going to hurt, kill his children, that this is going to be, he's a family annihilator? And what would that do for the stakes in the film and for the audience? And so they were the three main things. I wanted uh, Joe to, to develop it. To, you know, to write it and I would develop it with him as a director. But then he's uh, very uh, in demand and he wasn't available. I think he was going on to do Giri Haji. So it was left to, you know, left to me. And then in some ways that was good because I had such a personal connection to the story. Um, so, but I kind of got his benediction, at least from that pitch at the beginning. I think it's, you know, it's beautifully executed, actually, and you walk that tightrope so well of, like, we, you know, we do share the subjectivity of the kids and of, of Riz, and then we also see that sort of wider picture of how that feeling, that tension, what will happen. You kind of worry for them. Um, I see talking on subject, the, the points of view, we should talk about the, the construction of the point of view, because it's like, it feels like that's very baked into the visual language of the film. How did you sort of, how do you prep I mean, this is your second feature with Ben Kraken. Is it? Am I pronouncing his second name right? That's how I pronounce it, and I'm sure it's wrong because it's like I've heard someone else his Croatian name, and it's, I think it's got a, a, a really specific pronunciation. But I'm notoriously bad at. If he hasn't corrected you, then I'm, I'm I think he's given up after <laughs> ten years. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've done that over here with Jan. It's always Jan. <laughs> But go on. So, how did you how do you choose the aesthetic and the way to sort of create this uh, sense of being in the eldest son's mind, as well as being in Riz's, and then not having that the other layer? Um, yeah, it's like it's. Um, I mean, I'm sure you find this. It's like it's something that evolves through many conversations with the DP, um, and you, I always go into a conversation with Ben with lots of thoughts and references and ideas, but um, I know the best version of the film comes when we really start talking about it. Like I can't come sort of prepackaged with it and, I'm, and I, I can't go to Ben and say, hey, can you help me execute this? It's, um, it's a kind of dialectical conversation where you, you know, uh, throwing ideas back and forth and kind of building on top of each other's ideas. And so we just, we started to create, I don't want to call them rules because they were quite flexible to some degree, but we just tried to contend with the script and think, okay, what does this need? And some of that, some of the language came from a kind of practicality. I was like, okay, we're working with two kids. I, I don't want to use, I don't want Riz to act opposite doubles so we're going to have to work around the kids schedules a lot I had an intuition that some of the best some of the best parts of their performance might come from when they're allowed to improvise so I thought we want two cameras 
I don't want to always give them specific marks to hit and to, to be really uh, prescriptive about, you know, a piece of blocking. We're going to need to be adaptable to them. So that meant we were going to shoot two cameras and sometimes long lenses and almost be quite modest and observational in our um, in the way that we shot the scenes, but uh, which featured the children. And yeah, I, I think that played dividends on so many days where we could be adaptable and it meant also like Riz knew that as well so he knew that every improvisation that he did could be included in the scene because there was always a camera on him and there was a camera on the kids and I yeah I really couldn't have done it another way if it was if it were if we were too specific about the way that we were covering those scenes but and then on, on, on the other end of the scale I said to Ben that we need to, yes, we're playing, there's, some, there's something of a reveal, like a third of the way into the film. There's a flip in how you're perceiving things. So but I spoke to Ben how we need to have a, some kind of relatively strict language with how uh, Riz's character experiences psychotic hallucinations. So, so we said at any time that he has a visually psychotic episode, it could only be shown literally through, through through his POV. So whether that's, you know, him seeing mosquitoes in the windmill of his car, looking inside the state trooper's eye, seeing uh, the rancher whose car he's trying to steal. Like we need to situate, we can only see that from, from his strict POV. Um, and then we, we also yeah, spoke a lot about locations and how we wanted, even as the film kind of, moves away from being a sci-fi, we wanted to have a counterintuitive approach where the locations became stranger and stranger and more otherworldly. Um, and so it was important for us to, to just join location scouts to find landscapes that could evoke, um, that kind of evoked a sci-fi aesthetic, whether that was a you know a, a, another worldly landscape or it was a dystopian kind of you know the burnt out vestiges of a sort of apocalypse post-apocalyptic town um and so we like that idea as, as the film i suppose has shifted to like a family drama in some ways the actual scale of the movie is getting uh bigger and so films like paris texas were a big influence just how, you know how intimate that father-son story is but it's set on this like really big canvas yeah. so they were like some of the conversations we were having at yeah the beginning of the process and then what's at what point did, did um tim tim crimes is this your first time working with tim yeah what's at what point does the production designer get involved is it the three of you doing a lot of this together or is it really you and ben and then you introduced it yeah, it was me and Ben. Who, I think it was me and Ben are close friends, and um, he'd read a few versions of the script, and he was sort of on board before, you know, even soft prep began. You know, we would talk about the film. Uh, Tim came on, you know, when as we were hiring all HODs, and we had to have American crew. I think I can't remember what the exact union rules were, but it it was I could have. I could bring Ben over and I could bring my producers over who in the end couldn't come over because of COVID, <laughs> uh, but everyone else had to be a US hire, which is, was fine. And, you know, it's, it's always like interesting to work with new people. And I talked to a few production designers 
And I wanted to find someone that had a very kind of textured and grounded aesthetic. Um, and I think, yeah, th- at that time, it wasn't too long after I watched the Lynn Ramsey film, You Were Never Really Here. And I just liked how, I just loved how that movie looked. So I talked to Tim, I phoned Lynn Ramsey and asked her about him. And she was super effusive and yeah, I like the way that he was talking about the movie. And as I was saying, these ideas to him about finding these strange otherworldly landscapes, he just started to do a big deep dive into California landscapes and what we could find. And I, I said to him that, you know, it was really important not to have, um, you know, I didn't want to shoot in Joshua Tree or find something that was too beautiful, like a kind of Instagrammable California, uh, you know, to be that kind of desert movie that's too quintessentially like um yeah beautiful and he was he was into that and he understood that so it was you know when you when you meet hod and you just feel very creatively simpatico with someone mm-hmm. um and that was the case with tim well, i thought you did beautiful work it's interesting the way you put it i never thought of it like that you do feel that it gets bigger in scale and it does kind of get as the film becomes a drama and, and as I say the reveal that it becomes more domestic in the situation but the stakes are quite high the, the aesthetic opens out because you know interesting smart choice to do shoot two camera I do that a lot when I work with kids and stuff do, does that mean do you cross shoot or do you shoot like like 45 degrees how, how would you or you point how would you go approach it did it mean to give the kids freedom you were lighting the locations 180 360 to re move with the kids or you'd still try yeah, and like it's a good it wasn't quite 360 and a lot of the those scenes they just they had sorry what did you say you were like you were like we weren't lighting it was more we also i think it was also because we didn't have the time i can't remember how many hours you have with kids but it's not many mm-hmm. like five or something and um mm-hmm. i made this to say i remember a few directors saying to me like you have to get doubles of kids I promise you, you'll never, Riz won't be acting opposite the children. You'll do the kids' coverage, you'll run out of time, you'll come over to Riz and he'll be acting opposite a double. And I really hated the idea that I would have to do that because it was so important for me to, you to really feel the chemistry of this family uh, dynamic, for you to really feel like the, you know, the, the three of them really connect. And I thought that would be so hard to replicate if you have your lead actor acting opposite a double. So anyway, I made this promise to Riz that you know, I'm going to do everything I can schedule wise and just in the, in terms of how I plan the shot list and design each day that you will never, you will always act opposite uh, River and Aditya. And I think that was a good decision, but it then became hard each day because your, your day becomes almost like five hours in a way. Of course, there's always stuff to pick up and insert wide, you know, but it, it becomes quite tight. So we didn't, that kind of hemmed us in to some extent, but it, um, in a good way, like a creative limitation can be helpful. So we, yeah, it wasn't a case of 360 that we could just completely follow the kids around the set. Uh, I kind of gave them more like a defined area. And yeah. Work with Ben and said like, we need to make sure that this side of the room is um, is workable. Um, and when you, when you say that you're going to shoot two cameras, I find like DPs really don't like the idea of that because of course you want to shoot single camera. You want to be as specific as you can with the, the lighting, but the, Ben's really attuned to, um, you know, that performance is key. 
And there's no point yes. spending a lot of time setting up a shot if it's not going to help facilitate uh, a good performance or it's going to hem an actor in. So it, uh, he was very adaptable to try and find solutions that were like going to get the most out of the kids in a way. I mean, they were wonderful. Um, and we'll get to the performances and more specifically in a bit. Like, I think the young kid steals it a little bit, to be honest. But, um, but there is a real precision to the aesthetic in other parts of the film. So uh, you just alluded to, to you shot listing. Do you storyboard as well with Ben? Do you, or do you shot list? Have you shot listed the film ahead of time? Or do you like to shot list? I, I tend to shot list in the morning. Do you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you work? How do you put a scene up on its feet? Um, with this one, we shotlisted the whole film. I think before we got to official prep, so before the whatever prep was seven weeks. Um, so before we got to the states, we shotlisted it. So it's like a really simple, you know, word document. I don't know how long it ends up being, fifty pages long, and it's you know it's quite basic. Shot one you know, wide, you know, whiz in the kids mm-hmm. in frame, walk towards a Jeep. And so if someone ever looked No at locations it, at this stage, right? No locations. It's just projected. What could it be? Let's just break it down. To some degree, it's, it's you know, it's uh, at its most elemental for some scenes where we just don't know anything. It's just story beats. You know, you would need, you, you need at least these things. Uh, if your back's against the wall, this is what you need. But you are also you're kind of projecting, you're imagining the location and it's uncanny sometimes how much you shot list something, you know, in London, in a cafe somewhere, cut to two months later, you're in a location that is actually very close to what you've both imagined. Um, So we do that ahead of time. And then on scenes that involved, you know, like stunt sequences, uh, like there's a bit of a shootout, you know, the shootout sequence two thirds of the way in the film or the car chase near the end. Um, I, I storyboarded that, uh, or sorry, I worked with a storyboard artist uh, to get that, uh, to for the shot list to be replicated, you know, as boards. Then once I've done that, me and Ben go through the shot list again and because we've usually learned something from looking at the boards and kind of flowing through them and mm-hmm. imagining how... And then I'd go back and work with a storyboard artist to give him the rejigged shot list. So some scenes are like very specific. Some are so simple, you know, if it's a diner scene and you know you want a kind of, you want the language to be unfussy and modest. Or we decided in those in those scenes, we wanted it to be quite observational and unfussy, that it's, you know, medium shot, close up. And we wanted the space for the performances to, to really breathe. And then as once we got once we found locations, they inevitably inform the shot list again. I think because of, uh, it was COVID, and so we couldn't see anyone else. Like when we were in California, me and, and me and Ben decided to stay in the same house because we thought if we pull together our you know the budget that they give you for accommodation, we could get slightly nicer place if we live together and but it meant that every <laughs> then couldn't you know anyone anyway so we just reshot listed the movie like every saturday <laughs> so really like, oh my god that's like you're never gonna have a weekend that that move is just yeah you're locked in to work for 24 7 he was some saturday he was like please do not do a shot list today 
let's just uh, let's get a hike or something. Um, I love you. So you really you really prepare, but then do you find yourself deviating from the plan on the day at times? If things catch you, you still do you still feel loose, or do you do you want to execute the plan as best you can? No, it's um, it's to feel the uh, confidence to deviate from the plan. Um, in some way. I remember it was one of the guest tutors at the NFTS said to me uh, one day when we were we were prepping a one of the initial shorts. It was Gillis McKinnon and he uh, and I was debating whether to storyboard or to shot list or you know shoot from the hip. And he said to me, the preparation will set you free. And it really stuck with me the the simple uh profound truth of that <laughs> and, yeah and I've never... he's, he's quite brilliant Gillis yeah, yeah. I, I, I got some brilliant ones out of him I love this yeah that was so yeah. and that, that match uh sure I storyboarded every frame and then on the day I kind of I, I you know I didn't look at it but it was in my head and it's uh, still may be my favorite short from when I was at the NFTS so I, I quite like the idea of uh, in future movies of just being really, really meticulous, as meticulous as you can be in the prep, and then just having the confidence to like step away from that if it doesn't feel right in the moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely relate to that. Like, look, the performances are incredible, really, and it's so hard to work with kids that age and to hear that you wouldn't have doubles in front of Riz. I just, for some people don't realize that is such a, like a schedule crunch. It's incredible. Like so, let's lots to unpack here. First, we talk a little bit about the casting, the process, and why you picked who you picked in Riz and the kids, and then your approach to rehearsals and blocking. Yeah. So, so with Riz, it was um, we'd started to go out to uh, to cast and spoke to um, a couple of actors. And so the script was out there and you know, when it's been sent to one actor, the agencies have it and, you know, anyone can read it. And they're working uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, we weren't too deep in the, the process, because you know, casting takes so long. I, I even, I think casting is maybe one of the worst, not the, like hardest parts of filmmaking for a director because it's and for producers because you're it's a bit it's an element that you can't control. You don't know if the script is being sent to an actor, what else is you know on their reading list, if they're going to read it, how quickly, and you're you're just at the mercy of so many things, and um, so you're kind of bracing yourself for you know you don't know if it's going to be a month, six months, a year, a year and a half. Anyway, Rizard uh, Rizard read the script. I don't know. I can't. I don't know how it got to him. Somewhere in WME, had it sent it to him. He really responded to it, and he asked to meet. And he kind of pitched himself um, to be in, you know, to be the character. I mean, it wasn't like a pitch. We just, you know, we talked about um, the character and fatherhood and what this relationship with. Um, this guy has with his kids and how he this this character had sort of defined himself as a protector and in some ways that had um it 
it was almost his Achilles heel because it meant that he could never show weakness. And there were these themes that we we're both interested in. So it was like, yeah, I had a very strong intuition then that Ruiz understood the project. And yeah, so it didn't really take much convincing. I think I was doing the kind of, the, you know, playing the director card of being, of, um, hesitating before making a decision so it maybe took me a couple of weeks to like think think it all through and I was quite That's a big ca- decision to lead isn't it yeah exactly and I, and I I think me and Riz had a very good rapport uh from that first meeting and so I just felt like I could be very candid with him and that, so I, I emailed him and we and then we met and spoke about it I said oh, one of the um kind of sub themes of the movie was about how there was this quintessential uh, uh, archetype, a white American Marine who is afraid of invading aliens. Maybe there's a theme of some of white America being afraid of um, illegal immigrants. And that that shifted, you know, if I, you know, if I cast you in the role. And, And I said, that's the process I'm going through. What is the movie then? If it's that, and he, he was someone that, yeah, he would he he could speak. He spoke so articulately about how it in, the theme changes, but in a, in a way, it also the film is embraces other themes and it amplifies the level of tension in the film because suddenly that character is even more of an outsider. You know, who's even mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. the sense of isolation that the kids have from the world around them, it, uh, the level of jeopardy that they're in. And so, yeah, it was um, it, uh, it was just like a really fortunate thing about, and you know, you're on set four months later, and you're thinking, how could it have not been this person? Um, so it's such a strange, uncanny thing the casting process. And then with the kids, I uh, worked with a casting director called Avi Kaufman. He's cast so many uh, great movies, and we and you, a legend. Yeah, yeah. We even felt just lucky, you know, that she said yes to the project and wanted to work with us. We felt like that was such a big win that day. Um, and me and Avi talked and I, we both felt that we didn't need to have a kid that had been on screen before. You know, they needed to have an interest in acting and it, it didn't need to be like a, a street casting situation, but they didn't need to have lots of credits. We We wanted to... The casting process could be a journey where, you know, if we felt the confidence in a child's performance, um, even if there wasn't evidence from, you know, uh, that we could reference, that was going to be fine. And so we 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 auditioned kids from all over the states, Texas, New York, Louisiana, Nevada, so many kids and so many like talented children. Like, of course, your job becomes really, really difficult as you start to whittle it down. Um and then, yeah, it was slightly different with with each kid. Like with Lucian River, who plays the older brother. I mean, he was he, he really has such a powerful talent. I it, um, I made it quite difficult for him looking back now because I would give him like the hardest scenes to to audition. And this was over Zoom, you know. And it's, oh my god, yeah, the Zoom Zoom auditions, Zoom auditions for an eleven-year-old, and you're doing like the final scene of the movie on your on your second audition. Um, 
And he just like, you know, we'd, we'd finish the session and then me and Avi and the producers would speak and everyone's got like tears in their eyes. And he was just so committed and so, yeah, just thoughtful. And um, so, yeah, that, that was, that just felt really special finding him. And, and, and I also realised on set, which I didn't get as, it was hard to read over Zoom, what he does really well, which is is a kind of like foundational element, I suppose, for an actor, but it's, a, it's something that's easy to forget when you're on set, is that he's a really active listener. Like so much of his performance is trying to read yep. his dad and trying to figure out his dad. And you need to see the thinking going on behind the eyes. And he kind of does that naturally. He's not kind of waiting for his turn to speak. He's... You know, he's really in the scene. And then... But, sorry, go uh, No, no, it's just that it was, it was such a, a great find with him because so much rests on his shoulders in a way. He's going opposite with Ahmed. <laughs> so if he if he wasn't good in the end, it, it, we were going to be in trouble. And then with the younger brother, Aditya, it's like, in a way, his character was something of like the comic relief of the film. And... Um, I, this was already in Joe I have, a, I have a question. Go for it. I have a question. So to the crowd, but I have a question that's come up, and it's a good question for someone that's listening. It's like, uh, Michael, did you have any support from the young boys when you were shooting the violence or the aggressive scenes? And how did you get those performances out of them? And I did guess I how there is support from the boys when you were playing those scenes. How would you how would you approach the violence and the aggression? Would they would you throw Riz in and surprise them? Or just what was your pro? Or would the boys? How did the boys support you in the process? I didn't like the. It's my first time, I suppose, working with kids of that age, and I'd done a bit of research into how other directors had worked with children, and you know, there's different methods, maybe. And I, I didn't like the idea that I would be having to manipulate a performance out of them, and always trying to surprise them every day and get the performance. Um, yeah, by kind of outsmarting them. I, well, I, they both kids are highly socially intelligent, and you can. It's the kind of kids that if you're at an adult barbecue, those kids would be talking to all the adults, and you know they're such entertaining and thoughtful and um, smart young men that I just I felt like I, I could. I spoke to them in a lot, a lot of ways, in the same way that I'd speak to an adult actor. You know, um, we talk about motivation, talk about subtext, we talk about what's happening between the lines. Um, so I didn't feel like it was maybe only a couple of occasions that I thought I, would, I need to think of a, you know, a, a bit of a trick to to get them to a place, you know. But, but even then, when I did something like that, I felt there was something a bit shameful because we'd had such a genuine, honest uh, working relationship. I remember one time me and Riz spoke about how we wanted to get Aditya really angry. This is after he drops his like, action man out the car. And um, there's something about that kid. He's, it's almost like he's never experienced anger in his life. He's got, he's got such nurturing parents and he's such a sweet natured kid. It's, it's an emotion he, he, he struggles to tap into. Or it's a, it's a similar kind of um, challenge when he was having a fight with um, with his older brother. Like it was when we were doing some of the uh, rehearsals, he just found it hard to like get, find that rage. Whereas with, with other kids, like, you know, that's, na- you know, that's naturally there. So anyway, me and Riz spoke about, we've got to get a double of one of his toys, not tell him 
and then Riz is going to throw that out the car. Um, and that was going to upset him. And we both spoke about what the ethics of this. We spoke to, of course, to his parents about it. And they, they were like, yeah, do it. He'll be fine. And then we did it. And, and um, it got him somewhere, but not all the way, because I think by that point, he trusted me and Riz so much. He just thought they would never really do that with my toy. And so after that day, I was just like, oh, I just don't like the idea of, um, yeah, tr- tricking a performance out of the kid. I just wanted to, um, yeah, it was a very honest director-actor relationship. Uh, of course, you contextualise things a bit differently when you're working with a seven-year-old. Yeah. But I was just, I wanted to give them a lot of space for improvisation and for their input. So I thought, you know, we'd start rehearsing. How many, days, how many days did you have? How long did you take to shoot? How many days did you have to shoot the film? It was eight weeks, so forty days, I guess. That's quite tight. And you'd have the boys. You'd have the boys five hours of the day, and then you'd move on to stuff you could shoot without the kids, presumably, yeah. to build your full days. Yeah, that was hard. It's quite a quite an achievement. I mean, I think they're wonderful, and I love that you cast Riz in it, and I love the layers of seeing a brand, a brown lead in this role that no one would ever usually put them in and subtly seeing their Arabic tattoos at the beginning and what it, what it means for someone like that to have gone through everything. It's an extra layer that I think is brave and really without overgoing into it, it's, it's, I think it's wonderful. Um, so once you've got these, let's talk about post a little bit, right? Because we I just want to try and touch each all three parts of the process before we wrap up and we open up some more questions. Is, is this the second film you've made with your editor as well, right? Yeah. As, do you do you do you tend to cut as you shoot, or do you some edit, some directors don't like that and just want to see an assembly after they've shot? What's, how do you work with your editor? I'd love to um, to cut as I as I was shooting something. We we couldn't because uh, the post was being done in the UK, and I think the. U.S. union rules meant that the editor couldn't work uh, in the U.S. It was that compounded with COVID complications, meaning there was just no way that we could get Maya out there. So we could speak on the phone, of course, with totally different hours, and she could send a link. But it's just so, it would be great to shoot something, you know, do a day's work shooting, go into the edit, see, yes, you know, yesterday's scene, uh, because you're becoming acclimatised then to what the film is. And... We didn't. We couldn't do that. So what I, you know, what I had was finishing the shoot, having a week off, going into the edit, and then watching the assembly, which I find is such a hard day when you're you're seeing. It's brutal. It never gets easier. Hard day. It's so. (sighs) It's just like everything. Everything's on. You know, all the flaws are on show. you know, because you haven't even you haven't had any time, um, you know, to to massage any scene or calibrate any performance. It's like the editor is having to work so fast just to get something to show, and and um, it's it's really tough. Whereas I think that that would be a major benefit, other than you're already banking in editing time when you're shooting, um, is that you're just acclimatizing to what the film is, and you can kind of respond to that the next day. So we couldn't do it, but I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to work that way. And do you, when you in post, I mean, I love working that way because you can. You sort of shift, don't you? Know, say, acclimatize the grammar of it. 
you have your, I find you have your projection of where it's going to be, and you look at it and it, it tells you where it is, it wants to be, doesn't it? And you can sort of course correct a little bit, shift, lean into what you're learning from it. Do, but do you, do, when you, once you're in the edit, are you someone that likes to sit for every cut? Or do you, do you like to just give some thoughts and have a distance and leave? Like, how did you approach posts with your editor? Um, I, I'm there a lot, maybe too much. I, I probably should <laughs> learn to let go a bit and, you know, take more days off. Ways to do it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I like to, to be there because it's like, in some ways, editing is a, you don't have any of the stresses of, you know, the shoot. There's no uh, practical stress to, to deal with. It's, lit, it's a creative puzzle in quite a pure way. Um, and it becomes quite an intimate relationship with your editor. So th- it's innately, there's something kind of looser and more fun about that experience. Um, so I think that's part of it. Also, I just like Maya is a really good friend and li- I like to be in her company. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just fun to be there every day. And, you know, uh, I, I, but I think there could be definitely positives just to, to step away you know, a couple of days a week and let go um, and have the confidence uh, to do that. And, you know, Maya is so capable. It's not, I think that's a skill that I, I need to, uh, I, I need to learn or adapt to. Um, and she's also someone that's like, I, I think I found the first month, the first four weeks quite hard editing the film because, you know, I was, questioning decisions you know there's this hybrid genre aspect um and i remember we went for lunch like maybe on the second week and i was like is this gonna work um as a film i'm worried and i was really just i was bothered about small things like an insert a wide we didn't get a location we had to change on the you know just stuff that you'll never know if you hadn't gone through the if you weren't part of those discussions during production remember she said to me Look, Michael, all I see is possibilities. We've got now four months of just creative conversations and possibilities. And she just wonderful, watched, like brilliant. Yeah, it's a great energy every it's day. What you, it's what you want to hear. So you, yeah. Yeah. You get really, she's really in, an inspiring energy every day. And so it's um yeah, it, it was great to have that. You've got another question, Michael. Taking us back to the shoot, a practical question has come in. Michael, really enjoyed it. What was your car scene setup? I mean, how did you approach the dialogue, the scenes in the car? And did Jay really drive the car at times? We, I mean, because we're shooting with kids, which obviously we talked about, it uh, doesn't give you many hours. And then compounding um, the uh, the schedule difficulties, we, we were there's a lot of car scenes which just uh, eat up a lot of time. And I made the decision in prep not to do any uh, green screen or LED screen, not to shoot in a studio. That was, which was partly an aesthetic decision because sometimes I just feel like I can, it feels phony outside the car. Uh, me and Ben spoke a lot about how, you know, it's maybe only DPs and directors who watch TV shows and films and notice that it's done, you know, in a studio, but audiences embrace it. So are we overthinking this? It's going to, it's going to, um, going to be so much more difficult, so much more difficult if we do it for real. But the other factor that led into it was, I just didn't want the kids, especially the younger one, Aditya, who'd never been in a film before, been, you know, been in front of a camera before. I didn't like the idea of him acting in a green screen or next to an artificial. 
Yeah. It just, so, so were you on a low loader? What was your low loader your... some days? And then the other, uh, and then ha- more than half of it were on a, in a pod car, which is where you have a driver on top of uh, your hero vehicle that's controlling the car. And the great thing about that is that uh, we're a low loader. Of course, the car is, is dragged um, by a, a lorry, so you can't shoot through the front windscreen. By a pod car, it means you can shoot 360. And that's how we shot the, the young boy driving. So he was in the driver's seat, but there was a driver on top, and we just took him out, pinched him out with, in post. But it's wonderful. I mean, I love the pod. The pod system is incredible, isn't it? I mean, so would you, how would you get your coverage when you're on the pod? Would you be on a Russian arm on a follow vehicle or would you, would you mount cameras? We had to mount, we could do, I think we had one day of Russian arm. If we had more days, that would have been um, great. But you know what it's like when you're getting into like the last couple of weeks of a shoot, every piece of kit. Oh yeah. Is it becomes a negotiation? Um, so we had to mount, which is tricky because, you know, it can take an hour to mount that angle and you kind of got to stick with it for a bit. And if you want another angle, you got to pull over, do another mount. By the time you're back on the road, you could have lost two hours and that's two hours yeah. out of five hours with the kids. Um, so your decisions in the morning about which angles to choose and which of um going to give you the most mileage are really important because you're kind of it ends up becoming quite a big commitment i mean it's a, yeah i've been there like the sun you're losing the light and you're taking 45 minutes to put a bonnet mount on it's just it's the most excruciating experience tonight. yeah another question great film michael you uh, hit that one paul wilkins asks hardest and most rewarding sequence to direct give us the hardest scene to direct and the most rewarding scene to direct two different ones um, hardest was maybe the shootout sequence just um because we i think i set up we did it over like two days and set set ups on each day was uh 41 42 and you, you know you, we couldn't go overtime because of kids and just because of what it puts you in, in turnaround so it's just you had to turn up and as soon as you were on set you you just had to run around like a maniac and um it was i don't know something like 43 degrees so it was just you're broken by the end of the day <laughs> to get like 40 shots and some absurd uh, absurd heat and then most rewarding sometimes it's like the quieter scenes like the scene where Riz's character says goodbye to the kids in the diner which is you know the coverage is super simple it's like an angle or two on e- on each character, um, and we had a couple of hours to shoot it. But I just, the, I just really, I just felt like there was a the connection between Riz and the kids was really there. Um, and I, my goal, you know, at the very beginning of prep was like, I really want this to feel like a family. I really want you to buy it. I really want you to feel the chemistry there. And I just, I really felt that when I I found it very touching when I watched the scene, the chemistry between them. So I think those were the scenes that, uh, yeah, were special to shoot for me. Well, I think you nailed it. I know how hard it is to 
pulled off, you know, three people in a scene, two non-actors, two different ages, first time. Sometimes it's hard to have them all looking at the right place, but I, you know, and but you really, I really get a sense of chemistry, and I think it's the major achievement of the film. Actually, I was really moved. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.